Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Awesome. Well, we like to start every Sunday by saying welcome to any of you that are joining us here for the first time, whether you're here in our sanctuary or if you're watching online. Welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are going to be continuing our look into eternity at the end of Revelation in chapter 21 by looking at the new Jerusalem. You know, some of you may be familiar with the fact that there's uh, nicknames for a lot of cities around the world, right? Big cities have nicknames that kind of reflect the aspects of the city or the qualities or the characters of the city. You know, New York, it's called the Big Apple, right? Does anybody know why it's called the Big Apple? No, nobody does except the internet. So I looked it up for you, okay? Um, that was originally a reference to the fact that New York had big-time horse racing venues. That's why it's called the Big Apple. Interesting, right? Chicago is known as the Windy City because, well, it's windy there, all right? Los Angeles, our city is commonly referred to as the City of Angels, and that's not really a nickname per se, but more of a translation of what Los Angeles means. But Jerusalem, biblically, has a lot of names, nicknames, other ways of referring to the city. It's called the City of God. It's referred to as the City of Peace, the City of David, the city of the great king. It's referred to as Zion. And Jerusalem is a very special place. It always has been a very special place. It's a beautiful place. But it's also a place of great conflict. Jerusalem was a place that Jesus visited seven times during his ministry here on earth. And on one of his visits, it tells us in Scripture that Jesus wept over the city because he saw its future destruction. And we know historically that that happened just as he foresaw. But Jerusalem, as we know it today, has seen war over 35 times in its history. It's under threat right now with what's going on in the Middle East. 17 times Jerusalem has been reduced to ashes. 18 times Jerusalem has risen from those ashes. But this city, Jerusalem, always seems to be on the verge of catastrophe and some war, some difficulty looming on the horizon in one way or another. Biblically, Jerusalem is kind of the, the geographic center of the earth. You know, when you read through Scripture, you'll find that when Scripture is referring to the uh, compass points, the north, south, east, and west, Jerusalem is always the center point. It's always the reference point when the Bible makes reference to north, south, east, and west. In Ezekiel 5, God said, I have set this Jerusalem in the center of the nations with countries all around her. In addition to Jerusalem being somewhat the biblical geographical center of the earth, it's also the center of the earth spiritually. You see, Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified. So it's the epicenter of salvation. It's the epicenter of all that, that we hope for in our faith. It's the only city on the earth where Jesus was crucified. He wasn't crucified anywhere else. It's the place where the sins of the world were put upon the Son of God. Prophetically, Jerusalem is the center of, of much difficulty. As we've been studying through Revelation, we've seen that Jerusalem is the center of a lot of the end times drama that takes place through the tribulation period. It's a, a place prophetically that deals with a lot of different judgment and, and things of that nature and conflict. And governments of the world have always had their eye on Jerusalem. They're always watching Jerusalem to see what's going to happen and what's taking place there. And 
Again, the prophet Zechariah said, Jerusalem will be a heavy stone for all peoples. But ultimately, ultimately, at the end of all things, in the eternal state to come, Jerusalem will be made anew, not as a center of geography, not as a center of politics, not as a center of conflict, but it will be the center of glory for everything, for the entire cosmos. It'll be the place where the crowned king of glory will rule eternity in perfect holiness forever, and it will be a place that God's people dwell with him in his presence permanently. The end of Revelation 21 into Revelation 22 describes this new Jerusalem and its beauty, its glory, its wonder, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But first, we're going to spend some time in worship because we want to worship the King of Glory. We want to praise his name because he is due our worship. He is worthy of our worship. Our everything, our entire existence, our life, our purpose is because of him. And so he is worthy of our praise not just on Sunday mornings, but, but all day, every day. But here as we are gathered as his people, this is a special moment that we come together to say, God, you're awesome. God, you are glorious. And we love you so much. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much, God, for who you are. We look forward to just being with you in eternity forever, God. We can't wait to get to heaven. And Lord, we're so blessed at this description you've given us at the end of Revelation, Revelation of what the new heaven and the new earth is going to look at, God. And as we get into this description of new Jerusalem, Lord, this city, this perfect holy city wherein you dwell with your people forever, God, that we would just be encouraged and motivated as we look forward to what is to come, God. But we wouldn't just be focused on what is to come and forget that we're here still now with a call to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that don't know it. And so, God, motivate us today. Encourage us, God. And then today, Lord, as we celebrate together as the body of Christ in communion and remember what you did for us, Lord, may we be reminded very powerfully at the cost of our entrance into perfection, into heaven, into eternity, Lord, and that we would be eternally grateful for you, not just in words, but in action and in attitude and in our heart, Lord. We love you so much, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we are starting uh, the, one of the final major sections of Revelation here. It's uh, verse 9 of chapter 21, and it goes all the way down through verse 5 of chapter 22. And so it's a pretty straightforward description of this future city called the New Jerusalem. Now, this section is broken up into two parts. And so the first part is really a description of this beautiful city from the outside. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And then there's a description of this beautiful city from the inside, and that's what we'll be talking about in our next study. But at this point in Revelation, we know and understand that the rapture of the church has already happened. Tribulation has come and gone. The millennial kingdom is over. Satan has been permanently cast into the lake of fire along with the false prophet and the Antichrist. The final great white throne judgment on those who have rejected Christ throughout all time is done and past. The first creation is gone, has ceased to exist, has been undone and replaced with a new heavens and a new earth. And now what we have described for us here in the eternal state that we find ourselves at the end of all things is really a major element of eternity. It's a major feature of eternity, if you will. It's the city that comes down 
out of the transcendent spiritual realm down to the new earth wherein the redeemed will dwell in God's presence and glory forever, the new Jerusalem. And so read with me in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now as we get into the description of this city, this beautiful city, we have to remember that much like much of Revelation, what we're seeing here is both a literal description that has great symbolic meaning. We have to understand that. I do believe very strongly that this is a literal description of a literal city that will exist in the eternal state. But that doesn't mean that there's not symbolism tied into the elements of this city. And so although there is this literal city here, that doesn't mean we cast off symbolic meaning, but it also doesn't mean that we cast off the fact that it's a literal city and say that it must only be symbolic. And so John opens this section here seeing an angel that he describes in a way that tells us this angel hasn't been seen for at least a thousand years, right? This angel was one of the angels that was pouring out the judgments of God during tribulation period. And so we know that a thousand years at least have passed. And so here this angel shows up, an angel that was familiar to John that he had seen before. And this angel says, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. But then he goes on to describe a city. That's a strange way to describe a bride, right? It's a strange way to describe a city. What he is doing here is he is describing the city of God, this holy city of God, in terms of its occupants, all right? The idea of I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then to go on to describe a city is what he's describing here, what he's telling us is that New Jerusalem is a bride city. It's a city that is occupied by the bride of Christ. This is the place that Jesus had prepared for his people to be occupied by his people who we know biblically are the bride of Christ. We see that description throughout Scripture many, many times that the redeemed are called the bride of Christ. One of those examples is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, where Paul was speaking to the church at Corinth And he said, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. And so that's one of those places where we get the idea that the church, the redeemed, are the bride of Christ. There are other places that describe Jesus as the bridegroom. In Revelation 19.7, the saints are specifically called his bride. And so I want to point out very clearly in the beginning that the bride is not the city. It's the city being described in the context of its occupants, the bride of Christ. And we have to understand, and I hope you realize and appreciate, that bride, the term bride is one of God's favorite names for you and me. It's one of his favorite names for the redeemed his church, his people, all the redeemed. When he calls us his bride, it's meant to invoke the idea of the closest possible relationship 
that we can experience here on earth. It's one of the closest and most beautiful relationships. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, it has a lengthy description, and it's one I use when I do marriage ceremonies that talks about this symbolism of what marriage here on earth between a man and a woman is meant to symbolize in the relationship that God intends to have with his creation. That there's a closeness and an intimacy there that is meant to be symbolized by marriage. Incidentally, it's why I believe Satan has attacked marriage so aggressively down through the ages. Has fought tooth and nail to redefine it because God said marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That's his intent. And, and that whole symbolism that is meant to be a picture of the relationship God wants to have with his people. And so Satan's like, let's redefine it, let's corrupt it, let's change it, let's do everything we can because it's meant to symbolize this picture, this relationship that God wants to have with you and me. But calling us the bride in Scripture is the idea of, of closeness and, and intimacy and connection and unity as God defines it. That's what this marriage uh, concept is. That's what calling us the bride of Christ is all about. And then you'll remember in Revelation 21, verse 2, after the introduction of the new heaven and the new earth, it said, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And so we understand that the city is not the bride. The city was adorned like a bride, telling us that the, the, the city and the bride connection is a metaphorical connection. It is a symbolic connection, telling us that the splendor of the city, the glory of the city was a reflection of its occupants. And then again in Revelation 21.3, he went on to say, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And so again, this city that is adorned in glory like a bride adorned for her husband, reflecting the glory and the splendor of the occupants, the occupants there who is the humanity that God is dwelling, this, dwelling with. The whole picture is this closeness and this intimacy and this connection um, seen there. That's the point. And where is this connection? Where is this closeness? Where is this intimacy um, um, centered in? It's centered in this place called the New Jerusalem. Now, I think it's sad, but there are many people, um, many Christians on the earth today um, that like to have a long-distance relationship with God. They prefer to have a long-distance relationship. They like to keep God at a distance. He's close enough to feel salvation, but he's far enough away to not affect your behavior. You know, and there isn't much intimacy at all with God. There's, there's not a whole lot of closeness, Right? You know, you, you haven't read his Bible in months, years, you know. It has a layer of dust on it. You know, <laughs> you're like, well, what's going on there? Maybe you come to church and you worship and you hear the word here, but then you go right back to your life and you don't really live the faith that you claim to have. There's little, if any, conversation with him, right? You don't hear from him by reading his word. You don't talk to him in prayer, um, maybe you don't express much worship, you know, uh, or adoration for him in praise and worship. And, and really, for some, you, you, you don't wear your faith outwardly the way a person wears a wedding ring to proclaim to the world, I'm married. Your faith is all hidden and inside. And, 
you know, that's not the relationship that God wants to have with us. That's not the relationship that, that we're going to have with him into eternity. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, you know. And, and yeah, it's amazing to me that he calls us his bride at all, right? <laughs> I mean, especially watching, uh, considering that he's been watching the church for 2,000 <laughs> years, right? He sees me. He knows my life. And he still calls me his bride. I mean, it's just amazing when we think of, of, of our weaknesses and our struggles and who we are, and, and yet he goes, yeah, but I still love you. I still call you my bride. He calls us his bride, and he will call us his bride into eternity. That's just a beautiful thing. His love for us never waxes, never wanes, but is and, and will be perpetually at its greatest expression. That's God's love for you. And so when we're looking at this bride city that he's preparing for us, you know, the big question for us is, are we preparing to be residents of the bride city? Is that how we're living our lives as his people? Are we preparing for that time? Are we preparing for that closeness? Are we preparing to be there with him? Or are we flirting with the world while holding his hand? You know, and it's a question that, that every believer has to ask themselves at, at different times. It's a question that, that we see in, in the different uh, parables and stuff, you know, as the bridesmaids who weren't ready for the, for the coming of the bridegroom and all this type of stuff. But this place, this city, it tells us here in, in Revelation that it comes down out of heaven. That phrase, it's coming down or comes down out of heaven, is mentioned both in verse 2 and verse 10 of Revelation chapter 21. Now, the fact that it says it's coming down out of heaven, that tells us something very important, that it's not created in that moment. It's being presented in that moment. You understand the difference? That it's not being created there. I believe this new Jerusalem is primarily what Jesus referred to when he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. You remember that? John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. And that's really what that word mansions means. It means rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? It sounds like at this point in Revelation that the Father's house that Jesus had been preparing places for us within existed already. And now it was ready and now it is being presented to his people for their permanent habitation with God forever. And so verse 11, back in Revelation 21, it tells us that the city is arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The primary characteristic of the city of God, this new Jerusalem, is that it has the glory of God. That's the primary characteristic. It has the glory of God. That word arrayed there, it means to be dressed or to be decorated in splendid or impressive attire, right? Um, it means that it possesses that which it's going on to describe. So it says arrayed in God's glory. That means the new Jerusalem is dressed in or decorated with. It's characterized by the glory of God. The glory of God permeates this place, as we're going to see. And this glory, it said, is described, it's the radiance like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone. So again, when we're studying through Revelation, we often talk about what's literal and what's metaphorical, right? One of the clues, not, not in 100% of cases, but one of the clues is when it says like 
A. That means it's given a metaphorical description or some, of something. So its radiance was like a precious jewel. And then it describes what precious jewel it's like, a jasper stone. Now, this word radiance means light radiating from an object that the light is concentrated in. It's the idea of a shining star, right? That the star itself, the light is concentrated within the star and then it radiates out from it. In verse 23 of Revelation 21, it tells us this. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. And then in Revelation 22.5, it says night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So the glory of God illuminates this place. There's, there's no moon reflecting the sun. There's no sun generating light by nuclear reactions. There's, there's, there's no need for any of that because the Lamb of God is there who is God shining the glory. He is the source of light and it is just illuminating the entire place permanently. Now it gives us this description, right, like a jasper. In modern times, for those of you that are into precious stones and, and, and that type of thing, it's an opaque, whitish, yellow stone. That's what a jasper is today. But throughout the ages, the definitions of precious stones have, have changed. And in John's time, um, a jasper is referred to a, a gemstone that was crystal clear, all right? It would be closest to what we would call a diamond today, a clear, shining diamond. And so it's describing the glory radiating from the city, this glory that is radiating out from God in this city makes the whole city look like a dazzling diamond. I mean, it's just beautiful, right? It's just the beauty in its purest form is what this city is. Now, did you know that God loves creative beauty? He does. He loves creative beauty. I mean, it's evident as we get further into the description of the city, but think about it. We see it in the first creation, right? The other night, um, Irene was, was leaving our house with, with Gavin, and there was just this beautiful sunset that had purples and pinks and maroons in it, and she just goes, oh, wow, look at the sky. It's so pretty. And we've all seen that, right? Beautiful sunsets, beautiful sunrises. And we just look in the sky and we're like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> right? how, how can it be that beautiful? We've seen things like, like flowers and, 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 and just stuff that exists in creation that is beautiful, beautiful to behold. Well, in eternity, it's going to be demonstrated in a way we can only imagine here. You know, think about when you think of this creation, you know, think God, God created this creation in six days, right? I believe it was six literal days. God made the heavens and the earth here, the first creation, right? And, and we see that in the first chapter of Genesis, right? God said light be and light was. Then he created, you know, the earth and the skies and the waters and the plants and all the animals and all this stuff. Now, in John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And as of today, that was 2,000 years ago. If God created the beauty that we see here in the sunsets and sunrises and in the sky and the stars, if he did that in six days, imagine what the place he is preparing for you is going to look like when we get there. 
And again, we can only imagine because it's beyond our comprehension. If sunrises and sunsets and the beauty of this place was accomplished in six days, wow, the New Jerusalem is going to be amazing. And we get a glimpse of that here, but really, you know, what John is describing is what he's seeing from the outside. It's like a, like a huge, dazzling, iridescent, gleaming diamond, the most precious possible beauty that he can imagine. In verse 12, he goes on to start describing this city. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates, and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. So again, he's going on to give us greater detail about this city, right? It's a straightforward dimensional description here. It has four sides. There's three gates on each side. Those gates are inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. What's really interesting here is here we are in heaven, right? We're in eternity. We're, we're after everything. And, and this description of this city is very similar to, to the camp layout with the tabernacle in the wilderness. You go into the Old Testament, you read about when they were traveling through the wilderness and they would set up the temple, right? The tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. And, and the layout is very similar. You had three tribes, like these three gates, on each side of the camp in the Old Testament. And again, we know that the Bible tells us that the tabernacle and, and the temple were, were foreshadowings to what was going to be in heaven. And so we see that there's these three tribes representing, and both in the tabernacle and both in the New Jerusalem, the, the idea here is no matter how you enter the city, you're facing towards God because he is the center of it all. Now, why the names of the 12 tribes? This is a one for people who say Israel doesn't exist in the end and the church has replaced them. I'm like, well, then what's the point here? Right? If the church has replaced Israel and Israel doesn't exist in the end time scenario, there certainly seems to be a whole lot of emphasis on the 12 tribes of Israel throughout Revelation. Instead, I think Israel has a major um, role to play both in tribulation and through the millennium. They are God's chosen people. Everybody else that isn't Jewish, we are grafted into that nation of people. And so we see these 12 tribes here, and I believe that they're inscribed on these gates because they're our heritage. The Jewish people, Israel, the nation of Israel, they were literally the gateway to faith. They were the gateway to our faith, right? The Messianic age was promised and predicted to Israel and for Israel. The prophets who spoke of all of this came from Israel. The foundation of the New Testament is the Old Testament. And you can't study one without being able to study the other because they're so intertwined. They're not to be separated. Now, God had and, and does have a very unique covenant with Israel specifically, the Jewish people specifically, and I believe that is recognized and honored here in these names being inscribed on these gates. But then right after the gates, he says there's 12 foundations of the city with the names of the 12 apostles. So as much as the names on the gates celebrates and honors the, the covenant that God had with Israel and the Jewish people, these foundations now celebrates the covenant relationship that God has with the church, the church. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that um, the Gentiles were once excluded from the citizenship of Israel, 
foreigners to the covenants of promise. But it says in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ, you who were once excluded have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it was the blood of the new covenant that opened the door, literally, to everybody being a part of this, right? It wasn't just the Jewish people who were supposed to let the world know about. It was, it was the gospel going out to the entire planet, to everybody, both Jew and Gentile. And so Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 goes on to say this, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And so our Christian faith today, the Christianity that we profess as Christians, is built upon the doctrines and the teaching and the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. Its roots came from Judaism. But then Christianity was built through the, the, the teaching of the apostles, and that's this foundation we see here in the New Jerusalem. They were the ones who wrote the, the documents that we have as the Bible, right? The letters that we study. They're the ones that wrote these in the New Testament. They organized the first assemblies of Christian believers, right? Sure, the church started out primarily Jewish, but as it grew, Gentiles were welcomed in. They were among the first martyrs of the faith. So from a human standpoint, the apostles were literally the foundation of Christianity. And so in verse 15, now we go from a kind of broad description of this new Jerusalem to a more detailed description. He says, the one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with, a, with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. See, one of the reasons I believe he's describing a literal city here is because of how specific this description is. I mean, it's, it's very specific and very concise. Now, I've been to Jerusalem twice. I've had the opportunity to go to Israel um, two different occasions on a trip and a visit there. And, and these measurements, I will have to say, are very different than the place I've been to, right? Um, this, this is a huge place. Very, very gigantic, right? Um, now, it tells us that all three dimensions are the same, right? It's length, width, and height are equal. Now, to understand the size of this thing, we have to understand what a stadia is. Now, a stadia... Um, nobody is exactly sure what the measurement of a stadia is, but, but the best understanding is it's about 600 feet is what a stadia was. And so 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles, all right? 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles tall. That's the size of this new Jerusalem. Now it tells us there in verse 16 that the city is laid out in a square, its length and its width are the same. Now that word in the Greek is tetragonus, and it just simply means four-sided, right? So it says the, lady, the city is laid out four-sided. Now, because of that, some people um, speculate that the city is a cube, right? Length, width, and height are the same. But some people also see that it could be a pyramid shape because it says the city is laid out length and width in a square, 
but then all it says is that the height of the thing is also 1,400 miles. So it doesn't necessarily say it's a cube. It could be a pyramid um, shape. But the idea is that this is, this is a holy place, and the cube shape is reminiscent of the holy place in the tabernacle, meaning this whole city is now the holy place in the presence of God. Now, for reference, just to get an idea of how big this is, 1,400 miles is about the distance from Santa Monica to Houston, Texas. That's 1,400 miles. That would be one side uh, of this city. And so if you went length and width and you did the, the square miles, it's 2 million square miles that this city takes up. Now, a mathematician did some math on that, and he said a city of this size, assuming you dedicated just 25% of it to housing and the rest of it to infrastructure, right? Streets and public buildings and government structures and all that. said a city of this size could house 20 billion people with each person having a 75-acre plot. That's a big city. Now, it's possible since we'll be in glorified bodies, and there seems to be indications that our glorified bodies aren't going to be limited in their mobility, in their, in their locomotion, the way we are now, that it's possible this city might be laid out in three dimensions, right? That's just a speculative idea that, you know, it's, it's not just going to be one flat plane, but it'll be on the sides. You know, it's just interesting to think about. It doesn't say that per se, but it's something to consider. Now, some use these measurements, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles deep, 1,400 miles high, high, to say that's proof that this has to be purely a symbolic thing. There is no way this could be des describing a literal city because 1,400 miles tall would put the top of the city way out into outer space. You see, there's this thing called the Carmen Line, the Kármán line is considered the imaginary boundary between Earth's atmosphere and outer space, right? The Kármán line is 62 miles up. That's quite a bit short from 1,400 miles up, right? Um, like, for example, somebody did a scale image of this that I have on the screen here. That's the size of the city to scale to our current Earth globe, all right? You'll see it's covering up most of the United States, and it goes quite far into the sky, right? Um, and some people go, see, that's impossible. No way the city could be literal. That's impossible. It can't be that big. To which I submit this. Why do we assume the new earth is going to be the same size as the old one? There is no indication that they're the same size. Or that the exact physics of this creation are going to operate in exactly the same way in the new creation. You see, we have a habit of limiting God by our own understandings. And, and God is unlimited, right? What did he say? He said, what's impossible for you is possible for God. Can God make a city that goes 1,400 miles up from the surface of the earth into space and have it work perfectly fine? Absolutely. He's God. Like, if, if you're going to go, he can't do that, then you've created a God in your own image who's not really God, is he? And so we see this really interesting picture. And let's go on in this description because it, it gets more interesting. Verse 17, then he measured its wall. 
144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. And so there's a wall around this city that is 144 cubits. That one we do know specifically. Uh, it, it comes out to be 216 feet, okay? That's this wall. Now, it doesn't say whether 216 feet is the height of the wall or the width of the wall. It doesn't mention that there. And, and the reason I bring that up is because if that's the height of the wall, well, you know, the 216 feet is not a very impressive wall considering the city is 1,400 miles tall, right? Kind of a little dinky wall. It's more like baseboard around the city at that point. Um, but then again, it's, it's not a wall needed for defense because there's no enemies anymore, right? There's nobody attacking. There, there's nothing like that there. Um, and so nobody knows for sure. I think it's the width of the wall, but, you know, that's just a conjecture on my part. But we don't know for sure. But there's a wall around it that has a measurement of 216 feet. Now, what it does tell us is that this wall was made of jasper. Now, this is the same word as before, right? But you'll notice it doesn't say like jasper. It says jasper. So the indication here is that this wall is actually made of jasper. And jasper of the ancient times, meaning this wall is made of this clear, diamond-like, transparent material. And then he says, the city was pure gold, clear as glass. All right? Now, the word pure and the word clear are the exact same Greek word. All right? Why it's rendered pure in one place and clear as other, I'm not entirely sure. Right? It may have to do with the first time it's referring to gold and the second time it's referring to glass. It's kind of weird to say pure glass, right, when you're trying to indicate something. But the word in the Greek means free from adulterating matter, clean, pure, without blemish or impurity. What it's meaning is that it's a pure material, all right? Um, the more expensive glass in ancient times had less debris in the material, right? It, it didn't have stuff in the material. It wasn't blemished or scratched or foggy. The more expensive glass was, was pure. Now, interestingly enough, absolutely clear glass, clear glass like we understand it today, was invented in the Roman Empire during the first century. Before that, it was, it was foggy, right? But in the Roman Empire in the first century, they invented clear glass. But the idea here of pure gold and clear glass is that the city was made of a highly valuable material. That's the first indication here. Now, others see a reference to clarity, though. They go, no, it's referring to a clarity. Because if you jump down to verse 21, it tells us that the main street of the city was pure gold, same word. But then it says transparent as glass. Now, that word transparent in the Greek is a different word than pure and clear, right? It's a different word altogether. But guess what the word transparent means in the Greek? Transparent. It means you could see through it, okay? You could see through this thing. And so this can be a clue that, that here in verse 18 when it says pure gold, clear as glass, that it is not just only referring to it's a highly valuable material, but also that you can see through it. It's a reference to its clarity. Here's the problem. Gold as we know it is not see-through. It isn't. Gold as we understand it today is not see-through. But John is recording what he is observing in the words of his language, right? He is writing down what he observes, and apparently he sees what he's seeing. He recognizes it as gold because he calls it pure gold, but he wants to make sure that we know it has this special property, 
that it is clear as glass, that it is transparent. And so for those who have a problem with, but gold isn't transparent, this can't be a literal description, again, I submit to you, new heaven, new earth, God almighty. Can God make gold that is transparent? Yes, he can. Do we understand how now? No. But God created everything. So I have no problem. My faith has no problem going, this doesn't make sense here in my limited human understanding, consigned and constrained to this physical creation that I exist now, but God says something that is just absolutely beyond my ability to comprehend. Is it, is it true? I can't say it's not true because then I'm limiting God. So the radiating glory of God will travel through this transparent city, its transparent walls. It'll shine forth into all eternity forever. And I believe the repeated mention of this, this clarity, this clearness, this transparency, indicates that, that the new Jerusalem, the city, is designed to transmit the glory of God without hindrance. That's the point here. You know, up until this point, every other location that has ever housed God's glory, it's, it's been constrained somehow. It's been covered somehow, right? We've mentioned many times, you know, when Moses said, God, let me see your glory, and Mo God's like, no way, bro, it'll burn you up, right? You're just going to be able to see the afterglow because his, his unrestrained glory, his, his perfect glory is just too much for this creation to hold, and so it was inside the Holy of Holies. It was inside the temple. It was, it was constrained, and then, and then for us as humans, we have the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling within us, but, but it's still veiled by our flesh in that sense. But one day, one day it'll be shining without hindrance, without limitation. And so verse 19, it says, the foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first foundation is jasper, the second is sapphire, the third is uh, that one, the fourth one is emerald, the fifth one is sardonyx, the sixth is carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Now, I tried to be like, okay, what's, what's the idea here, right? You know, is there, is there some type of meaning into these words and, you know, there are specific gems here? And, and I really couldn't find anything that was, that was like, oh, here's the, the great symbolic meaning of this, right? The only other example we have of these types of gems being laid out is the breastplate of the high priest. But if you go read about the breastplate of the high priest, they're different gems. So it's, it, there's not an exact correlation here. And so, um, but it does tell us that this, these are the foundations of the wall right? Not the city. And, and so, I mean, quite simply here, I believe that these precious stones that John, John is seeing here is just simply another demonstration of the great value of what God has for his people. I, I just kind of think it's that simple, right? It's of incredible value, incredible value here. And so verse 21, it says, the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And so the end of verse 21 is where he starts to transition to describing the inside of the city, and that's what we'll talk about next time. But, but looking at these 12 gates, these 12 pearls, considering the dimensions of the city and the dimensions of the wall, these have to be some pretty massive pearls, right? Pretty huge pearls. Now, 
I don't necessarily think these pearls came from giant oysters, all right? Um, they were created by God's hand, you know, prepared as he prepared this city. But it is interesting. It's an interesting detail that the, the gates to the city are pearls, right? Twelve of them, three on each side, as we talked about. Um, what we know about pearls, and you may not know this, but, but a pearl, out of all the precious stones that exist in the world today, pre- uh, pearls are the only one formed through flesh. They're the only precious gem formed by living flesh. That can't be said of any other gemstone that exists. And you guys might know the process, right? You have an oyster and an irritant, a piece of sand gets into the oyster, into the flesh, and it irritates the oyster. And so what the oyster starts to do is, is sending out these, these, these secretions, right, to cover the irritant. And it just keeps covering the irritant over and over and over to smooth it out, to make it less irritating. And as this, this, this stuff spreads over the irritant, covering it layer by layer, eventually what you have is a pearl. A beautiful, smooth pearl, right? And so in that picture, that which was an irritant, that which caused irritation in the flesh, that's, that which was, was causing suffering, if you will, becomes something valuable and beautiful. So the pearl, the pearl is the answer of the oyster to the irritation, Right? So, in a sense, these, these, these gates in this city, this, this whole city, this new Jerusalem is God's answer to fallen humanity's crucifixion of his son. The irritation that sin is and was in our lives. The old covenant, he said, I, I covered your sin, right? But it wasn't permanent. In the new covenant, he came along Jesus died on the cross, and he said, I've washed you clean of sin, right? But in both of those pictures, what we see is God lavishing beauty upon us in spite of our sin, right? We come to him as sinful, broken people. We come to him as irritating people, right? I know we've all said it. If I was God, I'd strike everybody down with a lightning bolt, right? I'm glad I'm not God because God is infinitely patient, right? But, but sin, is, is, it's irritating. It, it causes friction. It causes all kinds of problem, problem in, in, in our lives. And, and yet, God covered it in the first covenant. And then in the new covenant, he washed it away. He deals with that thing that, that causes the greatest irritation, the greatest problems in all of creation. And so those gates, those, those pearl gates, I think, will forever be a reminder of how God took our sinful lives and made them into something beautiful. That every single time we enter the gates of this city, we pass by the reminder that God took our sin, dealt with it, and then made us something beautiful, made us something able to enter into his presence. It, it's just this picture of, of just amazing suffering that Jesus, that what he went through, the long-suffering with our old sinful ways, um, being that picture that the only way to get into the presence of God was through the suffering of the Lamb. What he did to make us beautiful, that's the only reason we have entrance to God's presence. That's the only reason we have admission into this city. And it's a testimony that will speak for all eternity. Our sin bruised him, our transgressions wounded him, and 
because he took our place and because he suffered for our sin, our broken lives are made anew. Through our faith in him, through our trust in him, our broken lives are made into something beautiful, allowing us entrance into his presence. And that's really what communion is all about, right? When we partake of communion as the church, it's a time where we come together to, to focus, to remember what he did for us on the cross. That's what we do in communion. Communion is where we remember the cost of our admission to heaven. We remember the price paid for our ticket, if you will. The great cost of our place in the new Jerusalem forever. We remember what he did to transform the great irritation of our sin into the beautiful pearl of salvation. And that's why we do this every month, to remember. And so, Everybody in the room here, you should have gotten one of these communion cups as you came in today. If you did not get one, please raise your hand. One of our elders will, will get one for you. So I think we got everybody covered. Awesome. If you're at home watching online, please get your uh, communion emblems ready um, as we partake of communion together. Now, the cups you have in the room, there's, there's two plastic um, tabs on the top. There's a very, very thin one and a thick one. If you pull back the very thin one first, it'll reveal, reveal the cracker here at the top of the cup. You know, we read in the Gospels that when Jesus took the bread, it tells us that he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the reason we, we do this, we observe this, we call it an ordinance of the church, is because the point was to never forget the cost of securing our eternal future, to never forget the great cost paid to forgive you and me of our sin, the great cost paid that God would be able to see us spotless and blameless. And it was an incredible cost and the reason we do this bread, and it's a certain type of bread without leaven in it, is because Jesus' body is represented by this bread. The fact that it's without leaven represents the fact that Jesus was the perfect atonement, right? The sacrifice laid on the altar couldn't be a sacrifice full of sin, couldn't be a sacrifice with any sin. It had to be perfect. And so leaven is a picture in Scripture of puffing up, right? Because that's what it does to bread. It puffs it up. And so bread without leaven, bread that's not puffed up, is the picture of that sinless body, that body of Christ that was without sin, that was given for you. And we remember in communion that, that he was the only one that could do that. He was the only one that could die for us and be the atonement for our sins because he was the only sinless one ever. You and I were sinful creatures. You and I, we, we, we sin every day. And hopefully we understand that we are forgiven for all of it. And that's one of the reasons why we do this, to remember. We know that he died so that we can move forward, so that we could live a life free from the fear of the condemnation, free from the, 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 the sense of he's going to get us. He said, look, I, I paid the price. I washed you clean. I, I, I gave my body on the altar so you can move forward and live a life just to honor me and to glorify me and, and to do what I'm calling you to do. To live a life that is looking forward to the heaven that awaits us, the new Jerusalem that awaits us. To live a life that says, I'm so looking forward to that that I'm preparing for that. 
And I'm trying to be who God's calling me to be in this life through the power of the Holy Spirit. To understand that the new Jerusalem and the heaven that awaits us is as much as part of the free gift as our salvation is. That is, we'll be there walking through those pearly gates. We'll always remember the price. To remember that we didn't earn it on our own because we couldn't. But that he paid the price for us. It was his sacrifice. It was the lamb that was slain that unlocked the gates. That granted us entrance and made possible restored fellowship with our creator now and into eternity. And so as we remember and partake of this, that represents his body given for us. We remember that the power, the sting of death, the eternal separation from the love of God that, that, that was sin and all that, it was defeated by his death on the cross. Let us never forget that because that is the very victory we have to live in now and the hope we have to look forward to. Let's partake together. Those in the room, the bigger tab that's on your cup, just very carefully peel that back. It'll reveal the juice here. You know, the Gospels tells us that when Jesus took the cup, he then said to his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And what he wanted us to remember is that it is finished. That's what he said on the cross. It is finished finished. The price has been paid. The penalty wiped clean. And if you put your faith in him, and if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your penalty's paid. There is therefore now no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. The blood that he shed means we're clean. Placing your faith in Christ, yielding your life to him, it means no longer having to atone for your own sin. Those without Christ, those who perish without Christ, those who end up in the lake of fire will spend eternity trying to atone for their own sin. And the sad truth of that is it'll never be enough. But the perfect, sinless blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you and me did the job, accomplished what we could not accomplish. And we're not just covered. Our sin is not just covered up temporarily, but we are fully and finally and completely washed by his shed blood. That is an ultimate victory. That is an ultimate freedom that we have here and now. It means you're free to pursue living for him without fear of being condemned for stumbling in sin. It means that when the moment when you sin, you can immediately go, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And he goes, I already did. Let's get up. Let's keep moving. Let's not wallow in sin. Let's move past it. It means that the justice of God is fully satisfied. And when he looks at you, he sees a spotless, blameless, blemish-free son or daughter that he loves with an unending love. 
a love we get to experience a little bit here and now, and I don't think we'll fully understand until we're in his presence, but man, I can't wait to be there. I can't wait to experience the full expression of all that that means. But here and now, we get to live as a son or a daughter, knowing that he's preparing a place for us, knowing that he can't wait to spend eternity with you because he loves you so much. And so we remember, and the idea here is to never forget that because of your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you by dying on the cross, there is no longer any veil between you and him. There is now no barrier of separation. There is nothing between you and him. You are being sanctified. You have been justified. And one day, because of what he did for you, you'll be fully glorified by and for his glory forever. That's what we remember when we partake of this. Let's partake together. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son to this earth to die for us. Jesus Christ, we are so grateful that you went to the cross obediently and willingly to pay the price for our sin forever. And Jesus, we are grateful that you then ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Comforter to dwell within us, to teach us, to guide us, to counsel us. God, we trust your plan. We trust your ways. We trust your purpose, although we may not understand. We thank you. And God, as people who know you today, that have put their faith in you for their salvation, trusting in nothing else but your shed blood, we hold on to, with great enthusiasm, the hope of heaven. Looking forward to that day when we are with you in the presence of your glory forever, in the beauty of the new Jerusalem. Reminded of how wonderful you are, how glorious you are, how perfect you are. That God, when it comes to all things, you are the first and the last. You are the point and the purpose. We thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.